this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights and expert comments from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, M&S, Pret, and WPP, just to name a few. We focus on six key areas of marketing, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty, for now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Places Will Go show with your hosts, Richie and Mark. Look, it's, uh, it's really lovely to see some new names pop up this evening. Um, but look, whether you're a regular or joining us for the first time, you are more than welcome. Myself and Mark actually set up this show going on about a year ago, um, where we are going to go live every, every week, typically on a Friday at 8 a.m. UK time, and we get to speak to an incredible guest. Now, the show is about uh, just under a year old, in fact. We've, we've come, on, come on our own slight journey in many ways, and we began the show at the height of the pandemic as really a way to breed a little bit of inspiration into, into people, or a, as Mark would put it, a bit of a, a, a jab of inspiration before the vaccine came through. Um, but to really acknowledge that actually the twists and turns that people are going through right now um, are, you know, are things that everybody does go through in, 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 in many times and, and, and pivots in their life. Um, so look, on the cusp of our first birthday, we feel really, really privileged that we get to speak to Seth Gordon this evening and talk about some of his learnings, both personal and professional. Now, Seth, honestly, you are somebody who really needs no introduction. And if I did start to ring off all your accolades, I'm sure we'd probably be here the entire length of the show. So forgive me if I don't do that. So rather than doing that, I simply wanted to say a big thank you to you, Seth. Thank you for bringing us new insights to all of us. You know, thank you for turning conventional thinking on its head. Thank you for uplifting our industry and making millions of people appreciate what we do as marketers. And really, you've done that through your amazing storytelling abilities. Seth, you really do come across as somebody who is humble and genuine. And I think that it, that's part of your secret source. Because despite your reputation, you always bring fresh insight in a very non-intimidating way. And actually, people just kind of leave sort of parting your, your thoughts, your insights, your writings. We're just kind of going, you know what? I get it. Because it's just so simply displayed and put forward. And I really, really just want to thank you for, for all that you do for us and our industry in that regard. You really take us to that high level. Um, so, you know, it's, it's no wonder, Seth, that actually above and beyond um, all the accolades, you actually are an educator and a very keen educator. And I know you're currently working on some new education initiatives, which I'm sure we'll come on to and talk about as part of this session. Now, finally, before I pass over to Mark for the first question, I couldn't help but just caveat this evening session with one thing. Now, when we spoke to Seth about setting this up, he really did feel reluctant to describe himself as anything other than a normal person who has achieved some great things. So it's with that in mind that I think on, all, on some level, all of us will be able to relate to Seth, some of his key lessons that he's had, um, as well as take away some of his reflections and maybe consider how we can introduce them into our own working lives. So without further ado, Seth, just want to say a massive welcome from myself and Mark to the show this evening. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you both. Pleasure. Mark, 
take it away. Thanks, Richie. So let's let's get started. I'll, I'll just add, uh, Seth. I've read a few bits and pieces. Uh, uh, watch your blog. I've uh, seen you on a few videos and a few of these things. Uh, fantastic to have you on the show. And I don't mind saying I'm a little bit nervous because you're a big fish in the industry. <laughs> so um, let, let's jump into the swimming pool at the right of the deep end uh, and get started with this one. Uh, so um, what, what have your observations of the pandemic been? And what would you say that the impact on marketing is going to be? Oh, so many things to start decoding. Uh, first, Thank you both for having me. Thank you for doing this week after week after week. People who don't do it don't realize how much effort it is and particularly early days when you don't have a big audience. So on everyone's behalf, thank you. In terms of the pandemic, so many people were dislocated, so many tragedies, so many lives curtailed. And to anyone who's watching this, who's been through it or who loves someone who's been through it, my heart goes out to you. I think it can almost feel callous to start talking about something like marketing when we associate that with matters of life or death. But in fact, a lot of what fueled the spread of this virus was bad marketing, was the way stories are embraced or not embraced, the way people decide what it means to be in community and what it means to panic and what's important and what's not important. And human beings like all creatures are wired to not want to die. And when we stared in the face of the abyss, uh, a lot of people acted in ways that they might not be proud of. A lot of people hold up in their home. And here we are doing something that's impossible, which is talking in uh, Nairobi, in London, in New York, at the same time, for free with high resolution video. Impossible. And so a revolution is happening. And revolutions destroy the perfect before they enable the impossible. So a whole bunch of things that used to be standard are never coming back. And most of the well-funded marketers in the world are well-funded because they work for industrial capitalists who sell average stuff to average people, who do things in volume, who fight for shelf space, who uh, are trying to maintain some sort of status quo while growing their market share. And I think that the five-year advancement of online shopping, the shift in connection in how and where people work, a refocusing on how we spend our money. Uh, and last but certainly not least, the baby boomers finally coming to grips with the fact that we're all going to die. All of these things lead to a generational shift that is not going to be forgotten for 50 years. And if you are used to doing marketing the old way, you know, you got your first wake up call 25 years ago when the internet showed up. But Marketing the old way is over. Seth, so, um, some really, really interesting sort of insights to bear there. Um, I want to think of, I mean, in a recent talk that you gave, you spoke about the difference between a personal perspective, between an and and a but. Um, and I would love to just get your thoughts and your thinking, particularly in, in the context of the current climate, as to how you think people should be thinking um, around that, that sort of terminology. So if we think about um, skills, if I need to hire a heart surgeon or a, a mechanical engineer to help me build a bridge, the skills are easy to measure and uh, hard skills rise to the surface. But for marketers, it's not really clear that there's a multiple choice test I could give you that would separate the good ones from the bad ones. So in fact, it's about soft skills. 
It's about resilience and empathy. It's about being able to see things, understand genre, uh, have bring humor and sensitivity to have um, an awareness of what you're capable of. These are real skills. And one of the ways that we can identify a real skill in terms of attitude is this and and but dichotomy, right? There's a uh, thing going on around me, but, well, then the but sounds like an excuse. The but sounds like if only things were better. The but sounds like a way to take ourselves off the hook. Whereas if we say and, we're acknowledging the world as it is and realizing the possibilities right in front of us, that easy problems aren't worth people on this call solving because there are plenty of people who could solve the easy problem. It's the hard problems that we need our soft skills for, our real skills. And if we can approach them by saying, all of these things happen that we didn't plan for and we're gonna do this, it feels different than the whining that's implicit in the word but. Just to pick up a point about the using you know, the, the knotty problems, there's a couple of really big knotty problems right now, which you, know, you could say climate, you could say diversity and particularly in inclusion. And, and sometimes marketing are a bit adjacent to that conversation and it's not oh, yeah. thread through into brands. So how, how, how do we break through on that front? So what's a brand? A brand is not a logo, even though lots of people on this call have said I'm rebranding when really what they're doing is relogoing. Logos don't matter. The biggest, most respected businesses in the world have horrible logos. Uh, brands are a promise, an expectation, a shortcut. What should we expect from you? And part of the reason that CMOs have such a short tenure around the world is for the first six months, uh, the promises are infinite. Then it takes six months for the CEO to realize they're not coming true. And then six months later, you're replaced because there isn't an understanding of what the marketer's job even is. And the job is not to do advertising or hype or to make a new logo. The job is to realize that everything the company does that touches the market is marketing. Just like everything you do that touches your accounts is accounting. And that means you're in charge. It means you're in charge of how you hire. It means you're in charge of who you're excluding. It means you're in charge of the effluent that you're dumping in the river and the way you handle customer service calls. And you're in charge of all of these things because they're all things that touch the market. And for a really long time, a golden age, marketers bought enough TV ads to make enough money to buy more TV ads. And they used those TV ads to get more shelf space, which paid for enough money to buy more TV ads. And it was a functionary role that pretended it was a visionary role because you got to go to photo shoots in Miami Beach in the winter. And that ended a long time ago. And a lot of brands coasted for a long time, but that ended a long time ago. And now what you make, how you make it, what the network effects are, what its social impact are, these are all marketing decisions. And so when Facebook's algorithm pushes people to division, that's a marketing choice. And it's not a choice that they have to make. And it's not a choice that's going to maximize their long-term value anyway. So who's speaking up? Well, I think you should speak up as loudly as you would speak up as if there was a typo on the full page ad you're going to run, because this is even worse than that. When I think about carbon, I can only imagine unborn grandchildren looking at us 30, 40 years from now and say, you did what? When you had a chance, that's what you did? And so yeah, climate change has a marketing problem as well. 
and marketers have a problem dealing with it. You know, Seth, it's interesting because I think a lot of marketers at the moment are sort of kind of almost going back to type when you talk about the marketer and the days and marketing in the days gone by, the comms bit. Because if you look at studies, the CMO study is a great one. It actually shows that a lot of um, responsibility and accountability around the market bit is actually being dissolved to other departments in the organization. And marketers are starting to become more narrowly focused around comms. It just feels, it feels counterintuitive to what, what you're describing. And, and in fact, you, you talk a lot about being on the hook. Yeah. And I wonder if you can just share a little bit of insight and, or, or thought on how a CMO needs to be on the hook in order for marketing to truly land its place in the organization. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, industrial capitalism gave us school and school and industrial capitalism both pushed us to not be on the hook. Because if you're not responsible, you can't get blamed. If you can't get blamed, you're not going to get fired. You're fine. So what is a meeting? A meeting is a group of people sitting around waiting for somebody to take responsibility. Because if someone was willing to take responsibility, they could have just sent a memo and we could all skip the meeting. And this desire, because of industrial settings, to avoid responsibility, to be off the hook, is part of the reason why most CMOs don't have the purview they should have. So if you're working for a German car company uh, running ads and you discover that they're rewriting the software to cheat on emissions tests, you should say, we're not running another ad until you fix this problem. Because all the ads I could run for the next 20 years aren't going to make up for the fact that you're doing that thing over there. That's a bad marketing thing you're doing. Stop. And, you know, I know my one real job. I went in on Christmas day because I had nothing to do. And I answered the phones all day long. I was the only person doing customer service support for a software company that made kids toys in 1983. And in one day of answering the phone, I learned way more than any of the other brand managers in that company. Cause I spent the whole day talking to customers. So if your customer service phone isn't under your purview, then you're not really the head of marketing. And the same thing's true with your warranty department and the same thing, go down the list. Because all I know is I spent half an hour on hold yesterday with a brand and I'm never gonna buy anything from them again. And they can run all the ads they want. That half hour they stole from my life, I can't get it back. Uh, so true, we've all experienced that. Uh, so you talked about times of change. 25 years ago was the first wake up call. This is the next one. Uh, now you've, you've mentioned, or you've talked about sunk costs quite a lot. So if I try and tie that together, what, what are the sunk costs that people are hanging on to? Maybe tell us a little bit more about your perspective on sunk costs. Right. So the first day at Stanford Business School, they say the most important thing you're going to learn at Stanford Business School is ignore sunk costs. And most of the people I went to school with never fully understood it. And I think part of the reason is it's not well explained. So what's a sunk cost? Uh, the guy across the street from me was having some brickwork done on his front lawn and it took about a week. And the guy who was doing it had a big sign that he brought with him, put him down in the ground to get new business. And he did a good job. And at the end of the week, I walked over as he was packing up. And I said, you did a good job. He said, thanks. I said, I don't know if it's worth anything to you, but your sign that says quality masonry, you spelled the word masonry wrong. And I don't know about other neighborhoods, but this is a pretty literary neighborhood. That's not going to help you get new business. And he said, well, yeah, I know. He said, but I've got 25 of these signs. And so I'm just going to keep using them. What's a sunk cost? A sunk cost is a gift from your former self. Those 25 signs 
were made for him by the him of yesterday. If you don't want to accept the white elephant, if you don't want to accept the gift of your law degree or the gift of how hard you work to be good at network TV or the gift of anything, if it's not going to help you, say, no, thank you. I don't want those signs. And that's what it means to ignore sunk costs. And so if I think about an industry I know well, book publishers, book publishers spent a hundred years earning the voice at the independent bookstore. The independent bookstore is actually the customer of the book publisher, not the reader. And the evidence of this is that if you pick up any book, you won't see their 800 number or their toll-free number on the back because they don't want to hear from readers. Their whole thing is they want to hear from bookstores. If they get more book space, shelf space, they win. Well, when Amazon shows up or whatever version of Amazon you've got where you live, and you're busy saying, well, I can't root for Amazon because I have to defend this asset we built over the course of 100 years. That might work for a little while, but Amazon's winning and the bookstores are disappearing. And suddenly you have no ability to influence anything at Amazon because you wasted 20 years watching them trying to defend your sunk cost. When instead you could have said, that's a wonderful gift, but I got to go build a new asset because the old one's going away. You know, Seth, you talk about sunk costs, and, and it's funny. I, I think conceptually, sunk costs in, 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 many, in many ways in today's world is sort of the, um, the thought and judgment of others um, that we, we have, right? And that, and that is something that, you know, you talk a lot about when you talk about forget the outcomes. Actually, it's all about the practice. Um, and actually, I think the sunk cost is actually when people are thinking about the credibility and the outcome of what other people will then judge them for, and that's what holds them back. Yes. Right, and that's very insightful. So tell me, tell me what you then think about what's your perception of that practice, and one, and how can we, as 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 our natural human instinct, is trying to get validation from others. So how on earth are we supposed to then tear that apart and and just focus on on the input? Yeah. So we live in community. Uh, I know how hard it was for me. I was just on a podcast this morning talking about my MBA experience. It took years for me to overcome the sunk cost feeling that I was disappointing my classmates from business school because they were at Bain and McKinsey and all the fancy companies. And I was struggling on my own, making $18,000 a year, $25,000 a year. And I could have done the other thing to fit in and to be part of the cohort because we live in community and it's hard to move away from that. So what I wrote about in the practice is a lot of people who decide to do creative work desire external validation so that they can feel secure that they made the right choice. And the peril is this, not that external validation is a bad thing. You are doing the work you're doing to get a result, but it's attachment to the outcome that's the problem. So let's say you and I wanted to swim across Joe Lake in Algonquin Park. And we wanted to be safe about it. So we'd want to stay 10 to 15 feet apart from each other while we were swimming in case someone got into trouble. Well, there are two ways we could do it. One way we could do it is we could get four lengths of rope, 12 feet long each, and connect my right hand to your right hand, left hand to left hand, leg to leg. And within a minute, we'd be dead because you would drown being attached to the other swimmer. Or we could just be aware of where they are and where we are, and when appropriate, go help them. The first one is attachment. If you need to win a Clio, if you need to get this thing, if you're constantly reverse engineering with the only intent of somehow willing 
the other party to get the joke, you can't do your work. The only way to do the work is to do the work. So when Miles Davis recorded Kind of Blue, it took four days, four days to make the best-selling jazz album of all time. And when he was doing it, he wasn't saying, this better win a Grammy, this better win blah, blah, blah. He was simply playing the music. If he hadn't done that, the album wouldn't be what the album was. That, that talk very much, talks very much to just being present and then enjoying things as you're doing them as much as anything. Um, but uh, thank you for the kind comments. We've got a couple of questions coming in. We'll get to them. But before we do, I wanted to ask about education. You've already kind of mentioned it, but you're a huge advocate. You've done a lot in that space. Brilliant work. I've got a 15-year-old and a 19-year-old. What, what, what do they need to be learning for their lives ahead? Well, they're lucky to have you and you are lucky to have them. Uh, I wrote a book for them. I hope you will have the guts to share it with them. It's called Stop Stealing Dreams. It's free. Uh, there's also an 18 minute TEDx talk about it. It's at stopstealingdreams.com. And in the book, it's more of a manifesto and a screed than a book. In the book, I argue that we forgot to ask a very simple question for the last 40 years. What is school for? What does a 15 year old answer that question? What does the school board answer that question? What does the principal answer that question? What is school for? And my guess is that at Eton or whatever fancy school I could think of off the top of my head, they're going to have a very different answer than a parent might, than an employer might, et cetera. And the main purpose of the screed is to just get people to ask the question, because I don't think most adults know the answer. And then I propose an answer. And my answer is, I think school is for two things, to teach kids to solve interesting problems which means it can't be a problem that's been already solved. It's not about looking it up. And second, to teach them to lead. And particularly for your 15-year-old, my guess is that every force is arranged around them to keep those two things from happening. And we are not, we do not have a shortage of compliant factory workers ever again. As soon as we can write down what a job is, we can get a computer to do it or someone cheaper. What we have is a shortage of people who can solve interesting problems and a shortage of people who can lead. And I would challenge both of your kids right this minute to never once again care about their grades, but to show me their work. Show me what they've created. Show me who they've organized. Show me who would miss them if they were gone. Show me where they're putting themselves on the hook. That's what I want to see. I don't care what your grades are. Yeah. Just, um, I, I feel like a terrible parent, but actually I don't think I show up too badly, but you know, great, great advice. Thank you. Just wanted to interject and say, thank you. <laughs> Richie, back to you. Um, Seth, on that, on a, on a similar sort of point, um, you often say that hardly anybody or almost nobody is talented in the world. Um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that, but more so maybe ask slightly more provocative question and say, uh, do you think you're talented? I'm definitely not talented. I am so proud of the fact that I have no talents because talents would have gotten in the way. If I was born tall enough to dunk a basketball or uh, with perfect pitch, which may or may not be a talent, um, then that would have distracted me from the hard work of earning skills instead. That it's really important to get the language right. Because if we say to someone, you're really talented, well, then what we're saying is you should do this because it's easy. Um, whereas if we say to someone you're really skilled, we're honoring the fact that they showed up to learn a thing. Yeah. 
And it's so optimistic and positive to rely on skill because skill is learnable. And so many things are skills. So I mentioned perfect pitch. This is a great example. It turns out that um, Chinese, the language is mostly sung, not spoken. It has a whole different range than the language I'm speaking to you now. And scientists argued that that's why a great percentage of kids growing up in China have perfect pitch. And they associated it with genetics, except children of Chinese immigrants in countries like the UK and the United States are as likely to have perfect pitch as anybody else in that country. It's not genetic at all. It's just the language that was spoken while you were growing up. Open the door to give you perfect pitch, not the other way around. And so this idea that we can embrace the fact that I am very skilled at having this or at having this, well, yeah, because you did the work and that puts you on the hook. Again, it's about possibility. It's not about deniability. Seth, can I just ask one quick follow-up and pass back to Mark then? But um, one of, I think, your, your key skills, probably undeniably, is your ability to tell stories. I mean, it's just been a hallmark of, of the Seth Gordon sort of image and brand, if I may say so. And I, one, of the, one of the things, in fact, 2003 is when one of your most famous talks came out, um, which was the, you know, how to get good ideas to spread. I would love just to hear a little bit about um, sort of, you know, when you, were, when you were prepping for that, that moment, I mean, was, did you, you know, what was that like? Do you really believe that, you know, your storytelling abilities have got nothing to do with even an element or an ounce of talent versus that skill, uh, but also just reflecting on that 2003 big moment? Okay, so first of all, it may have felt like a big moment for me, but not for the reasons that people think. No one had ever seen a TED Talk on video before that happened. TED Talks only showed up on video afterwards. Chris did not ask anybody. He just put them all up because he knew our egos were big enough that no one would complain. And so my friend, the late Sir Ken, you know, 30 million views. He had no idea that he was even being filmed. Neither did I. What made it feel like a big deal is I was finally invited to TED after all those years of being blackballed. And number two is Al Gore sitting in the third row and Bill Gates is sitting over there. I'm like, what am I doing on this stage? But there were only 250 people there. And that's all I thought would ever see that particular talk. Um, it's worth noting that I had given versions of that talk more than 200 times before I got on that stage. Because when I started one of the first internet companies in 1991, am I getting the decade wrong? No, 1991. The only way to promote it, because I didn't have any money, was to go give speeches anywhere that would have me. And so the first time I gave a speech at Internet World, they, have, they were very proud that they would rank all the speakers. And I was ranked number 600 out of 900 speakers. And I decided that I was going to get to number one. And I ended up speaking at Internet World three more times every six months. And I was measuring every time I gave a speech, what's landing with people, what's not. And the speech kept evolving. It was never the same twice. And what I learned was through skill, no talent whatsoever, this story works. That story doesn't. How can I compress this story? And I got to the point where I could put up a slide and say seven words, and that was a story. 
But I only got there because I was bad at it for a really long time until eventually I got good at it. And when I look back at that talk, which I haven't watched in, in its entirety in a while, compared to what I think was a good talk two years ago, there's no comparison. I got so much better in the 15 years that followed that TED talk. Um, and I know for a fact, having trained people to do this, I've not met anyone, even people who struggle with physical handicaps, who can't learn to do this. Some people have an easier time than others, but it's mostly about making the decision. It's the choice. That, that's so super inspiring for me. Thank you for that. Really cool. So Seth, um, I'm going to draw from a question from Joe. He talks about your amazing ability to answer all emails. If I, if I linked that, that to the experience of the last 20 minutes or so, I just get a sense that, you know, the little things really matter, paying attention really matters, and also work ethic really matters. Have I, have I caught you as a brand in what I've just said there? Um, I'm hoping that you're catching me as a person because this has been uh, more of my avocation than something I do for a living for a long time. I'm begging people not to send me email to test me, please. I've, <laughs> Noted. I've answered 175,000 emails personally, and it's only momentum that keeps it going because I just don't want to break my streak. I figured a long time ago, 30 years ago, if someone was willing to send me a non-anonymous, positive, optimistic email, I could at least take the time to write back to them. But now it's a place to hide because I can go home after three hours of answering email and figure I had a good day of doing my work, but it doesn't scale. And it's, um, it's revenge on me because I wrote a book called Email Addresses of the Rich and Famous a really long time ago. Um, this idea of permeability is magic. And we put up walls between each other. And I don't think that's a good idea. But um, I also know that the hard work is combining an attention to individuals with a willingness to do something that might not work, to do gutsy stuff. And what I know about answering my email is it always works. And so it's not gutsy. And so it's not important. I still do it because I don't have a staff. It's just me. But my best days are days when I can leave behind something that will give me a dopamine hit in six seconds and instead work on something that might take six years before I feel like I did it right. Seth, can I ask, um, and you, you talk about the, you use the word skill, and you also are a massive advocate of consistency. And I just wonder how you marry up the two in a world where you also do things that clearly do not scale. Yeah. Okay, so... If you saw Hamilton on Broadway, it would probably blow you away. But Lin-Manuel did not workshop it on Broadway. He workshopped it in rooms with six people. And then he workshopped it at Joe Papp's theater. And then it went to Broadway. And then he kept improving it. But there's a line in almost every space between backstage where we can workshop stuff and the big promise our brand makes. And it's super easy to create beta communities. It's super easy to start a podcast that only has 100 listeners. It's super easy to write a blog under another name, right? So start a blog today and write something every single day. You can't get in trouble for it because it doesn't have your name on it. Figure out what attracts an audience. Figure out where you're going to be able to hone your skills in a given area. It's a trap to think that we are always 
having to perform at the hyper-professional, this is a pacemaker that will save your life level. I don't want the pacemaker companies screwing around. I want them to make it exactly the same way every time. But for the rest of us, it's the failure on the way to better. That's how we get better. Yep, so true, so true. Paran from Dubai said, excellent, exceptional insights. Good to see you, Paran. Um, social media. So you're not, you don't really subscribe. You're not on many of the channels. Um, you have some views on what they do and don't bring to the world. Do you want to share some of those insights around social media? So I think if you use it the way you want to use it, good for you, right? So I rechannel my blog onto Facebook and Twitter. I show up on Instagram if there's a certain kind of interview I want to do. But I do nothing to make the status quo happy. And I certainly do nothing that makes the people who run social media companies a profit. And what they have done is persuaded all of us, including brands, especially brands, that their job is to somehow make Twitter's business model work better. So when you've got Wendy's having an insult war with McDonald's on Twitter, I defy you to show me evidence that that aligns with the company's mission. It doesn't. It's just, look, we made some numbers go up. We must be doing a good job. And if Wendy's wasting time and money, I don't care. But when a human being starts beating herself up because Instagram says she's not pretty enough, or when someone thinks that they are more popular because they're wearing a certain kind of hat, or when we see social injustice perpetrated because of a caste system on these media that have given us the measures we're supposed to use, I call foul on that. And so I have no interest in, in being unpaid labor for Mark Zuckerberg, none. And so what I'm saying to people is these are interesting platforms and you could possibly build a permission asset here, but you should not use the metrics that they think are important because these aren't your friends. They're not even friends and they don't like you. Those are just words that someone made up. Um, you know, that, that's kind of sort of thrown me off slightly because in a world where you talk a lot about community, you talk about permission. Clearly, there's a, the central theme around this is being able to build those communities through these platforms. And I just want to ask how you, therefore, are able to clearly build but maintain such a strong position for yourself without having to be on social media, because that feels almost counterintuitive to me in today's age. So how do you do that? So I think it's entirely possible to build a really useful Twitter following but then it would be a mistake to change your voice to make your following bigger. It would be a mistake to permit people to follow you who are toxic just because you need the numbers. That too much of what's going on is people are making choices because they want a number to go up. So my th theory of the game, which has been true since I wrote for Fast Company is simple. When I wrote columns for Fast Company and I wrote more words for Fast Company than almost anybody uh, is, I'm hoping that after I write this, people will cut it out, take it to the Xerox machine in their office, this is how long ago it was, print out 50 copies and put them in the little slots in the office. That's what I wrote to have happen. So I never or rarely told my readers something that they didn't already deeply agree with. I just told it in a way that if they shared it, it would help them. And so when I wrote this book and put it in a milk carton, People put the milk carton on their desk, not because they liked me, but because if the people they worked with got the joke, their life would be get better. So the way that I'm relevant is there's a group of people, it's less than a million, but there's a lot 
who, when I write something on my blog, share it with other people. And that sharing of it is how I show up in most people's lives. They're not subscribing to my blog. They're hearing from people who subscribe to my blog. And so I'm not trying to manipulate the system. I've never had, not one of my 8,000 posts has gone viral and been the winner of the internet. Not once have I written a blog post that spiked through the ceiling on purpose because I know how to do that, but it wouldn't help me build the voice in the community that I've been lucky enough to have. Well, we can all learn a little bit from the community you have built, you have built nonetheless. But I'm going to go to a question from Richard. It touches a little bit on what we talked about before in terms of uh, sustainability. Uh, Richard asks, how do you think marketing should be about resolving the tension between sustainability and growth? No small question. No, no small question at all. And um, I think that marketers have too long been silent on the urgency of carbon allocation that if the rules were changed so that the way you would win is by stewarding carbon better than your competitors, the ratchet would turn in the other direction. And it wouldn't hurt the long run of any industry. It would actually help to put us on a sustainable track, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say the Milton Friedman nonsense of the job of the corporations to maximize profit and the thought that we need to build a sustainable planet because the cheapest way to make a profit is to burn down the planet. So we got to change the rules. And the way to change the rules is to make it profitable to be sustainable because then the culture will amplify it in the right direction. And who better, you know, Paul Pullman is helping, but we need 500 Paul Pullmans to say, just like they're speaking up for voting rights access in the United States, speaking up to say, we can't have a business without civilization. So the way we're gonna to get to civilization is by turning the ratchet around and let us go back to playing the game we're good at playing, which is being better at the ratchet than our competition. And just one aside, because I have ADD, so I notice everything around me. Rick has a couple times mentioned authenticity and I would like to just chime in on this. I think authenticity is a crock. And I think that in a world of industrial capitalism, there's almost no room for authenticity. If you go in for knee surgery, you don't care that your surgeon had a fight with her spouse. You want the best version of that surgeon. And if you go to see uh, Ricky Lee Jones in concert, you don't care that she has a sore throat. You didn't want to see authentic Ricky Lee Jones. You want to see the best version of her. And no one's asking your brand to be authentic. They're asking it to be consistent. And that's different. So if I'm on a podcast, I'm on the podcast playing the role of Seth Godin, the consistent role of me talking about what I care about. The, the number of people I am choosing to be authentic with is tiny because authenticity is too precious to put to work for you at work. And instead, let's acknowledge the fact that when we show up in any institution, we are playing a role. And if we can do it with consistency in a way we are proud of, I think that beats authenticity any day. As we talk about different rules, um, I must admit that one of my favorite books that you wrote was Lynchpin. And in one of the, the chapters of Lynchpin, uh, you describe the role of the trapeze artist. And I'd love just to get your insights and thoughts on, on why did you feel that that was relevant, that all of us should be more like trapeze artists? I'm gonna to try to remember the riff, correct me if, if I get it wrong, 
Um, the hard part about being a trapeze artist is the moment in between holding on to one rung and holding on to the other rung. And it used to be that you could outlast technological change. That the last generation, if they started without email, could retire without email. But now on your watch, it's clearly going to be different. And if you view every one of these changes, the fact that people are working from home, the fact that now finally long overdue, we're paying attention to cast in the benefit of the doubt, all these things. If you view each one of them as a fraught moment until finally you get to hold on to the new normal, it's gonna be really hard to dance with your work. On the other hand, if you can realize the point is not the holding on part, the point is where you are in between, you can do your actual work, which is to be a leader, not to be a manager. So Seth, time has zipped by, don't know where it went, but so this is gonna be the last question. You've talked about some pretty big challenges in the world. I wanna ask, what are you optimistic for? I think the thing that gives me the most optimism is that we're talking about the big challenges in the world. And um, the I, you know, I dump on industrial capitalism all the time, but the magic of the market is the market is a listening device. The market really cares about what people think in a given moment and it approaches them where they are. The minute you stop doing that, you're a monopolist or you're a failure. But I am hopeful that we will realize that community action, organized community action is essential. It dances right next to the market. And that if we wanna succeed as marketers, we're gonna to need to make sure that our foundations are firm, that we have a civilized world to live in, and then we can go back to creating magic and possibility. So, I'm hopeful when I talk to the people like the two of you that there are enough good people who want to make a difference and that maybe we don't have to check the price of Bitcoin every five minutes. And instead we could do work that matters for people who care. That's my goal anyway. Fabulous. Richie, it's that time, unfortunately, you're going to do uh, your. I would, love to, I would love to. So sad. This is just the moment where we, we take to reflect on some of our key thoughts that have come through. Um, over the over the talk. And I've just got to keep things that have really struck with me and then I'll pass over to Mark for some of his reflections. We clearly talked about at the beginning around marketers and the need for a greater level of soft skill development. In fact, the ambiguity between the soft and the hard skill and actually marketers, the, the secret lies in that soft skill element. Um, you talked about the need to be on the hook and actually live up to those promises. And particularly where CMOs today are avoiding responsibility or there is the, the perception or the potential for avoidance of responsibility into the need to then actually now start to, to live up to, to some of those, those responsibilities better. Um, you gave some, some uh, of Mark's kids some great advice as well. <laughs> um, my, my massive, I mean, clearly, you know, you've, you've been a, a person in, in my life, obviously from a distance for many, many years, but just the, the, the little insight and the nugget that you gave me was so special when you talked about the TED Talk and the realities of what happened there um, was something that will stay with me forever because I think that gives us all hope that actually through anything, we can get better and better. And the thought that you were ranked 600 and something, and then you were determined over the time to make that change and you were able to achieve that. That for me is just super inspiring because that gives us all hope that no matter what we are, no matter what we do, we can constantly and continue to improve, which just links to one last point I'll raise, 
which is around the need for consistency to be able to then better yourself through time. And I hope, given the fact that we're on our one year, almost on our one year anniversary of the show, that if we look back to episode one, we can actually hold a little hand and say, well, maybe we just got a slightly better, you know, 50 episodes later. And I hope that continues for a long time. But look, Seth, it's been an inspiration, honestly, and it's just been great to be able to connect with you in this way. So just thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for leading. So, really appreciate it. So just a couple of words for me, Seth. And Richie, we, we got so much better because you remember we had a power cut with Mark Rickson in Tasmania. So, I mean, hey, we, there was only upside. Um, <laughs> now, Seth, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just a couple of things for me. You know, the world's not going back. It won't unwind. We've had our wake-up calls. Uh, meetings are just uh, where somebody needs to take responsibility, waiting for somebody to take responsibility. We talked about sunk costs. Uh, we talked about school, school should be for solving problems and leadership sadly isn't. Again, the story of what the story behind the story of your, one of your most successful videos. I'd rather focus on something that takes six years than six seconds. Brilliant. Failure on the way to getting better is the way to get better. My biggest take out is you need to do the work and you need to do the right work. And for those messages and many more, I wanted to thank you. A big thank you, Seth, on behalf of all of our listeners and watchers, those in now and those who will follow up afterwards. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Go make a ruckus. There you go. Thank you, Seth. Uh, just uh, It's a two for one this week. We've got Sir Steve Redgrave on the show tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. UK time. Uh, the Unique, he's won golds across five Olympics, probably Britain's most celebrated Olympian, also an inspiring character. So as I said, two for one this week. Uh, thank you for tuning in. And for some of you, if not all of you, see you 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. And thanks again for tuning in. Thanks, everyone.